And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have Kathy O'Neill, author of Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. This is a book about algorithms and essentially how algorithms are destroying society. We're going to unpack that quite extensively, and then we're also going to go into what can be done about it. How do we fix our algorithms? And so... After we've had that conversation, we're going to go into her new book, The Shame Machine. I haven't been able to read The Shame Machine yet because it hasn't been released. And I buy all these books that we talk about here on the show. And I buy them from bookstores so that I am contributing to the artist's revenue stream. So once The Shame Machine is released, uh, I'll read it then. In the meantime, I have asked Kathy to give us a brief pitch about it uh, and... So she'll do that at the end of the at the end of the episode. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Kathy um, because we had we didn't have a lot of time on this conversation uh, to unpack her history. So I, I wrote some bullet points about Kathy that I thought you would be interested in. So I'm just going to read these bullet points so you can understand where she has come from and how she ended up writing this book, Weapons of Math Destruction. So, Kathy began her career in academia, but moved into the private sector, specifically finance. She worked at D.E. Shaw, a hedge fund, before and during the 2008 crash, which, by the way, that crash completely decimated uh, my ability to function in New York for like half a decade. Uh, Her job was to build mathematical models to figure out what would happen in the financial market so that her firm could bet on it. After leaving D.E. Shaw, Kathy took a job at a firm that monitors risky behavior at financial institutions. However, she realized that none of her clients seemed to truly care about risk despite the recent recent crash, and most appeared to work with her firm primarily for the sake of appearance. Kathy rebranded herself as a data scientist and got a job at a technology firm creating algorithms. While working in tech, she noticed a lot of the same patterns she had seen in finance, such as risky use of mathematical models and colleagues convinced they could do no wrong. Kathy has moved on to trying to stop the punitive uses of algorithms and turn them into a force for good. And we're going to hear a little bit about why she has embarked on this journey. and if you're interested in this subject, if you're interested in, uh, I mean, all this is so important. Uh, if you're interested in exploring this more and in learning more about Kathy, I've got many links in the description to her books, to her website, and of course to her TED Talk, which was instrumental in helping me create my bullet points along with her book. Uh, so 
Please enjoy this conversation with Kathy, and I'll see you on the other side. Could you start by describing the the three elements of WMDs uh, in the in the book? It's opacity, scale, and damage. Could you could you uh, just go into that for a little bit? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, WMDs or weapons of mass destruction are characterized by having three properties, and I will just mention that there usually is a fourth property that comes along for the ride. Um, the first one is that it's important, it's like it's high impact. So it's, it's, it's a, usually a scoring system, almost always a scoring system on individuals. And those scores matter to those people, even though, um, they don't have much control over it. Usually it's a power situation, but like the, yeah. So the first thing is like they're high impact systems. The second thing is, um, and by the way, that, that means for a lot of people too, not just for a few people, but like a lot of people who care about these algorithms and how they act on them. The second one is that they're secret. So those people, even though they care about how they're being evaluated um, for these important decisions, like, do I get a credit card? Do I get a job? Do I get into college? Um, they don't actually have access to those scores typically, or even if they have access, they don't have access to the formula that created the numbers that they see. So for example, for the teacher evaluated model um, scoring system, they, it was just a number they were handed months after this, the school year ended with no explanation and very rarely um, any attempt at an explanation. So there's like, you know, already there it's, um, it's problematic, right? You have you have a powerful secret thing happening to people um, that matters to them. And so the third thing is that this doesn't work, that it's, 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 it's flawed. It makes mistakes. It ruins people's opportunities. Sometimes it ruins their lives. Um, so that's the third characteristic, that it's destructive. And the fourth one that I mentioned that kind of comes along for the ride is that it almost always, in my experience, starts out like, oh, we're going to solve this big, sticky, difficult society-wide problem with an algorithm. And then um, it not only fails to solve the problem, but it actually makes the problem worse. So it creates this kind of negative feedback loop that spirals. Um, I should say destructive feedback loop. It's a positive feedback loop in the sense that it gets worse and worse, um, but it's destructive in the sense that it doesn't actually solve the problem, it makes it worse. Um, and that's just an observation. Do you think it's because the algorithm, algorithms in general tend to be reflective of the limitations of our own society and even our own biases? Uh, do you think it kind of starts there? Uh, do, 
it seems to me that if we want an algorithm to solve all our problems, we have to solve all our problems first. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, I, I do think it starts there. My favorite example of that is hiring algorithms where, um, you know, in my TED talk, I, I gave the example of Fox News. Like, what if, what would happen if like I was hired to build a hiring algorithm for Fox News? I would essentially resurrect Roger Ailes from the grave because he, his influence for the many, many years he reigned supreme at Fox News um, is embedded in the data. I mean, data doesn't, transcend lived experience, right? Data is just an artifact of a, of a culture. And in this case, it would be Fox News. Um, but that's generally true. Like, so yeah, I mean, and the way I say it is like, algorithms don't make things fair, they propagate the past. So to your point, if we wanted to make a fair hiring algorithm, we'd have to have a fair hiring system in the first place to codify. Um, when we codify our existing systems that are unfair, we get an unfair hiring algorithm. And that's, you know, that's to be expected. Um, so, yeah, we can't look to algorithms to solve problems that we haven't already solved. And unless we're willing to do the work. I mean, listen, I, I, I believe in algorithms potential, but it requires really having the difficult conversation that we're trying to avoid when we stick an algorithm into a bureaucratic process and, pre and close our eyes, which is exactly what happened in all these WMD cases. Like we, every single one of them was like a substitute for a difficult conversation that we didn't want to have. You know what analogy I really liked is uh, you see a plane crash, you know it crashed and it has to be fixed. Algorithms go on doing damage for years on end before people start to realize that they're not working. I thought that was the perfect way to explain what the problem is here. Yeah, thanks. I mean, the, the current issue that I'm, I'm facing as an algorithmic auditor, as a advocate for fixing algorithms and holding them accountable is that their mistakes are invisible to most people, almost everybody, even the regulators that are in charge of anti-discrimination law in various regulated fields, they do not know how to look under the rocks. And it's really difficult to find those plane crashes. It's not, it's nothing like an actual plane crash when there's like dead bodies. Yeah. Well, what's, what has to change for that to become a normal part of what it is they're doing? Like, how is it that you be, became capable of doing this? I think the, the short answer is that, and this is kind of a peek into my new book, <laughs> is that I am not math shameable. Um, I think that most people are shamed, like math shamed. They're told like, oh, it's it's math. You wouldn't understand it. That is explicitly the, the phrase that was told to the teachers I interviewed, for example, who were trying to appeal their firing and some of the principals. Um, and some of the other people who deal with, who have dealt with WMDs that they were told it's Matthew wouldn't understand it. And they, and they bought that. They were like, oh, you're right. I don't have right, the right to complain. That's the power of shame. It doesn't work on me because I have a PhD in math. So anybody who's like, oh, it's Matthew wouldn't understand. I'm like, actually, if you can't explain it, that's your problem, not my problem. Like I know my rights. Um, that's number one. So I'm just not, I'm not intrinsically intimidated. And number two is 
that I know algorithms are really terrible because I build them. I know they're very, very fallible and they're toy versions of reality and they don't pick up on nuance and the data is in, imperfect. And I just know that they're crappy. Like, you know, if you built something really crappy and everybody, everybody, everybody thought it was like perfect, you know, there's a disconnect there. It's like a cognitive dissonance that you have. That's what I have. When I saw that people were, were just buying a whole hog, like the, the marketing crap that AI marketers were, were offering, I was like, wow, that is not appropriate. These things are pretty terrible. They're better than guessing, but that's a really low standard, especially when you're talking about people's lives. So that's where it starts. And then, you know, it's not, it's, to be honest, like, it's not that hard to figure out how to ask questions of algorithms. I mean, socio, um, sociologists have been doing this for decades. It's not for algorithms, but for processes, bureaucratic processes, which is where, where algorithms pop up. So it's not really different. So when a sociologist, I don't know who this first sociologist was who invented this sort of like blind um, test where they, you know, for example, I know uh, an example where they sent applications to a bunch of law internships, law school internships, and they changed only like the name from a white man to a black woman, to a black man, to a white woman. And they saw who got, you know, they sent them all over the country equally qualified, but different kind sounding names. And they saw who got offers of interviews and it was like white men, you know what I mean? So like, that's what I'm doing. It's not brain surgery. I'm asking the question, how do you treat this group versus that group? And I'm doing it by sort of putting putative members of such populations through the whole system and seeing how they're treated. Or I'm looking at the history of how people were actually treated that differed in in minimal ways. Well, what I found interesting about the Brooklyn, the case in Brooklyn with the teachers, and and before I go into that, I like the calling it a toy. That makes a whole lot of sense. One of the one of the reasons I was attracted to this subject is because I went I went through this really horrendous cookie cutter education system up in Maine that failed me miserably, and this teacher case just enraged me. Uh, and one of the things that was interesting about it, though, is some of the teachers that were let go had really good reviews from the parents. I mean, and yes, I, I like your perspective, which is that, like, when we treat our teachers arbitrarily and cruelly, um, we're doing a disservice not only to them, but to the students. Uh, and, of course, to the future generations of students who have... Where like, because the good teachers are like, I have options. I don't need to have a crappy job that punishes arbitrarily and I'm out of here. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, and to be clear, that system, it was like many, many fa- different models, value added model for teachers, but it was a family of similar types of models. The one that I got the most data on, which was the one that was being used in the D- New York City DOE, um, was essentially a random number generator. So your observation that some very good teachers were fired is not a surprise to me. It was random. It was literally random. Um, And so you might ask the question, why would they be using a random number generator to fire teachers? 
And that would be a good question. Um, my best theory currently is that it was really just a weapon against the teacher unions by anti-union um, po like po politics. It wasn't really meant to be accurate. I mean, I don't know. I, I really cannot really tell you. I will say that the Gates Foundation put a huge amount of money into this stuff and just was terrible at it. Terrible. Did you ever get more information about um, why it is that no one in New York City had access to the algorithm itself or to the data that algorithm was producing? There was some comment about that, that nobody in the New York City government yeah, actually I mean, had I access. Could, I I tried to FOIA <laughs> that model. Well, here's what here's the data I got was it wasn't actually what I did. It was this teacher at Stuyvesant named Gary Rubenstein, who I actually ended up meeting. He was wonderful. Um, he managed to so let me back up. A post journalist, New York Post journalist, FOIA'd the results, so the scores of the teachers, the names of this and their scores, and posted like the worst scores in New York City as like this terrible shaming exercise of teachers here are the worst teachers in new york city and they just like of course of course because it's a random number generator it didn't mean anything but you know they meant they made it seem like it meant something what gary rubenstein did um which was very clever and i didn't think of this is that he realized that there were a lot of teachers who got two scores um because they would teach seventh grade math and eighth grade math or eighth grade english and seventh grade english so the two scores for the same subject the same year both of these scores were supposed to just be like, are you a good teacher or not? So it's supposed to be answering the same exact question. So you should be able to compare them and they should be consistent. And they were not consistent. But I, the scatter plot that I think I showed at the TED conference was like almost random. So it was almost a uniform scatter plot. Um, so that was the data I got. When I tried to FOIA the actual model, I was denied. And when I finally got a my foot in I wedged my foot into the DOE data science division um you know they didn't even have access to it the DOE did not have access to this model it was a third-party licensed algorithm that only the folks in Madison Wisconsin um who built the model had access to and when I talked to them they were basically like oh yeah we knew it wasn't very informative at the individual level it should never have been used for high stakes decisions we told them that and i'm like you told who that oh the salespeople. you know and that was by the way it wasn't just them it was like essentially every wmd that i um i researched for that book um at some point i when i when i located the data scientist working on it was like oh yeah we told the salespeople not to pitch it as like bulletproof but we don't have power over that well, I, I found that when you create the when it's not you, but when people create these these types of tools, they are very quickly misused in these extreme ways. One of the examples is last year I did an episode on the MBTI personality tests, which are not supposed to be used to decide on whether or not somebody's hireable. Yet now that's what they're being used for. It's it's almost yeah, just like a lazy way of. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I had the example of Kyle Beam in in my book about who was denied a job based on a personality test as well also that was illegal this is not a fact about algorithms and people this is a fact about statistics you know like we can talk about the average height of a man 
and how it's bigger than the average height of a woman. But of course, that doesn't mean that every man is taller than every woman. I mean, it's just completely statistical uh, as, a, as a concept. So it's easier to predict averages. It's easier, easier to predict some summary statistics, like things like averages, than it is to predict any particular um, uh, individual. And of course, the side of that is like, you know, if you're an exceptional person in, in various, exceptional might be a bad thing, right? But if you're exceptional, then, you know, you're probably not going to be easy to predict by these algorithms. Um, you know, basically the algorithm is predicting a very normal thing. You know, that, that's what they're aiming at. So people who like Top Gun will probably like, you know, Star Wars. You know, that that's the kind of prediction it's good at. Um, it's not good at like, you know, an algorithm will not be as good at like really fringe movie predictions because it just doesn't have nearly as much data. And people who like fringed movies are quirkier than people who on average uh who like just sort of mainstream movies so it's, i'm just making a point that everyone knows um but it, in the context of humans and algorithms that's how it, it it plays out gotcha so what are some examples that the of how the objective of the algorithm affects whether or not it is good for us or bad for us. And, and do you have any real world examples of how an algorithm's objective has changed and actually uh, helped people rather than, I guess, not help people <laughs> putting this badly, but yeah, yeah there's, yeah. you know, the choice of proxy, like the choice of like target, like what does success look like? Because at the end of the day, algorithms are very, very good at pattern matching for success. So that's all they do. They're like, oh, you know, initial conditions like this um, were successful 75% of the time and unsuccessful 25% of the time. That's what they're good at. But you have to tell them what kind of initial conditions do we care about? And you have to tell them what does success mean? Um, so here's an example of a, of a crappy uh, outcome that is, is highly, um, you know, is targeted. Uh, Facebook targets us staying on Facebook, right? Its objective is to keep us on Facebook. It's engagement. So a product, a new product going into production happens if and only if I've been told it increases engagement. If it decreases engagement, it just doesn't happen. So engagement is the bottom line. It is the, the optimized to target variable. And it's terrible for us because essentially the things that keep us on Facebook is arguing with each other, hating each other, being outraged and going into these shaming outrage cycles. Um, so that's what we get when we have a platform designed to keep us on Facebook is we get, um, we get that kind of divisiveness. Um, another example of something that was a poorly thought out proxy target variable, but can be improved um, comes from the world of healthcare. So there was this company called Optum and they are an insurance company in healthcare and they wanted to improve patient outcomes for people that have really complicated medical procedures, um, medical problems, I should say. So they have like three different problems and 
what they found was that these people are very expensive, but not only are they expensive, but they often are unnecessarily expensive because they have like procedures or medicine medicines that are actually inter, you know, interfering with each other. So their idea was let's pair these folks with experts to help them navigate the system. It'll be better for us because it'll be cheaper and it'll be better for them because they'll get better care. And that was a good idea. But instead of finding these folks by like building an algorithm that said who has in the past would have benefited from this because they had complicated medical problems, they used a proxy. And the proxy was who was expensive in the past? Um, of course, there's a correlation, as I just mentioned, like people who have complicated medical problems are often expensive, but not people who have complicated medical problems that aren't, aren't treated, right? So if you're under treated for your medical condition, um, you're not going to make the cut. And that's exactly what happened. So in particular, African-American patients who have been historically under treated by medical care, uh, the medical system didn't get the, this concierge service and Optum got in trouble for it. The people who figured this out, by the way, were very smart. And I wish I could remember their names, but I'm terrible with names. Um, they just, they proposed a better proxy that was actually much closer to, does this person have a complicated medical problem? Which is, you know, which is what they're trying to get at. They were just being really lazy about saying who is expensive. You know, expensiveness, as I said, is only, is only good sometimes. And, 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 and it has this bias. So yes, so sometimes tightening up your definition of your objective functions, like tightening up the definition of success is exactly what you need to do to decrease your bias. Another example is hiring. So I, I like the example of the orchestra hiring, right? So the orchestra um, auditions, which isn't perfect. And we've been seeing a lot about it recently. It's not perfect at all. Even the new, the new version of it, which is what's called blind auditions. Um, but what, what blind auditions did, um, so, so basically they were like, oh, we have too much nepotism. We keep on hiring our like friend students instead of the best violinists. Um, so what they did was they started putting a curtain in between the people listening and the auditioner. And then they lowered the curtain because they realized they could see the shoe, which determined whether it was a man or a woman. And then they even put a rug on the hallway sometimes because they could hear people walking in with high heels um, so they really blinded themselves to unnecessary information and uh, that that's important. That's an important step. The other important step was they defined what it actually meant to be qualified by the sound. Now there's, again, I don't want to say it's perfect. It's not perfect. There's all sorts of bias already in what is a, the right sound because they have their own idea of what the right sound is that might not dovetail with the public. But I will just say that like, defining what you actually mean by by the target and removing unnecessary extra information that could bias you those are really good ideas to have in mind and it's kind of the opposite um of like that example i started with which was the fox news hiring algorithm which the idea was like who who was hired who in the past was successful at fox news like you know guess what white men um so yeah, so I, I do like that's this idea of like cleaning up and being really focused and laser focused on like what is the right proxy and what what other information should I disregard on top of that? Yeah. I uh, I appreciate that uh, arts example because 
the arts is is one of those industries where uh, people prefer to work with their friends even if they're less talented than the people they don't know. And they have to have the will to actually have those blind auditions. Oh, yes, I liked your baseball uh, example as, as a positive mathematical model. Could you mm-hmm. talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what I like about baseball, I mean, there's like so many things about baseball that you just take for granted. I mean, all sports really. Um, but I, I'm more of a baseball fan than a basketball fan, for example. Um, you know, the data is publicly available because it's actually televised, you know? Um, so whereas if you think about the normal world of data science, it's like data is missing, data is dirty. Um, you don't really trust your data. Um, it can be influenced by all sorts of bad uh, you know, you know, people with agendas, but you know, it, the truth is, you know, whether something is a ball or a strike, even if you don't agree with the call, you know, if something was ruled an error, even if like it's a, a, a topic on you know, the next day's radio shows, um, it is scrutinized and, and cleaned and combed over in ways that a data scientist would only fantasize about with most of the data they work with. And then secondarily, when you think about things like Moneyball, like the concept of like hiring people based on these new kinds of scoring systems, you know, I, I criticize scoring systems a lot, but that's because they are opaque and they, they seem to be unfair. And, and in fact, they, there's no incentive typically for the people that use them to make sure they're fair. Right. So especially for hiring, which this is at the end of the day, like it's about hiring baseball players on different teams, right? Um, The average person who uses a hiring algorithm, which is a lot of people just simply do not care about false negatives, which is to say they don't care if they miss qualified folks and just never give them an interview. They just don't care. As long as they get enough people who are qualified that they can hire, they don't care about how many people they've missed. It is my theory, by the way, that most hiring algorithms are essentially random number generators, that they get rid of the the number one thing they do is they get rid of 90% of applicants because the companies that uh, that use them are just like, we have too many applicants, please get rid of most of them. And that's the main thing that it does. It's like randomly gets rid of 90% of them. So you have less work to do. Um, but of course, as I said, that that supplies no incentive to them to make sure that they're not missing qualified applicants. Whereas in baseball, if you have the wrong scoring system that misses the best players, you learn about it. So you learn about false negatives. You learn that your th- scoring system is wrong. There's a feedback loop that tells you you made a mistake, which just simply doesn't exist for WMDs. Um, and there's, of course, there is a lot of, a lot more transparency. I'm not saying that they're completely transparent, but like there is a lot more transparency in these kinds of systems than there are in the opaque systems that d- deny us jobs out here in outside of MLB. I will just finally say that, like, I'm not claiming that every baseball player appreciates the system that they happen to be in today, right? Like they are not all psyched, like sluggers of your were the kings and they are no longer the kings of of their teams because other things are 
are prized now besides slugging. So they are relatively unprivileged by these scoring systems. So they're unhappy, but other people are more happy. And so then the question is like, how much rights do you have as a major league baseball player to be completely happy with every scoring system? I mean, and that's a large, that's a more philosophical question, but I'm just saying they're, they're not, they're not WMDs. Um, they're, they're much more, much too clean and transparent for that. I'll be honest with you. When I, when the book came out, it was September, 2016. And I was really looking forward to working on these problems with the consumer financial protection bureau. Um, which was decimated after Trump won and quite intentionally by the Trump administration. Um, it is reestablishing itself very slowly um, as are the other federal regulators. But like ultimately my dream of like helping regulators do their job of enforcing laws in the age of algorithms, because all of these algorithms have popped up in every regulated industry that you can imagine, hiring, credit, insurance, housing, all of those systems, education, all those systems have regulations, um, anti-discrimination laws, and are completely run by algorithms now. And there's just completely unaccountable algorithms. So my idea was like, oh my God, I'm going to tell these regulators how to do their job and help them figure out how to do their job. Like, which ultimately means, by the way, like it means translating those laws into something that a data scientist can enforce, right? A data scientist who's like building an insurance company um, algorithm to decide who gets a, a policy, who's, who's sort of um, qualified to get a life insurance policy. They they would love to, to know what the laws are that they need to make sure this algorithm complies to, but there is no well-defined answer to that question. So anyway, that, that has been paused for a few years. I did start an algorithmic auditing company and um, I've been like trying to wrangle customers for the last five, six years. Um, and the, and it hasn't been a total failure it has it hasn't been regulators, which was my original goal. I have had lots of really fascinating, interesting clients, many of them who self-selected because of the people who work there saying, well, like we just want to know whether what we're doing is fair, is moral. Um, it is really interesting to see this 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 movement and this field evolve. And I do think eventually it will happen at at the highest levels as well. Um, it's moving into that space. It hasn't quite got there yet, though. So the new book, it's yeah. about public shaming, right? Or public shaming culture. Or... Shame. It's about uh, what I, I call the shame machine. Oh, the shame, yeah. Yeah, and it's the first two-thirds are devoted to industries that literally manufacture shame in order to sell a product. Um, and the first third is sort of more traditional sounding concepts like the weight loss industry. We're going to shame you for being overweight. Then we're going to sell you a product that we know doesn't work. And then we're going to shame you for the fact that our product failed. And then you're going to be a repeat customer. And that is the entire weight loss industry. Um, I talk about 
poverty shaming, how we shame poor people for being poor as a way to avoid addressing inequality. Shame serves as a distraction and as a motivation, you know, so it's just a distraction from actual solving of problems. Like we, we just blame other people for it. We shame them and they're silenced because of the shame. And then they feel powerless because of the shame and they don't know how to fight back because shame is such a potent force. It serves to let us escape our responsibility as a society um, for actually addressing big problems. Um, addiction shaming, I talk about, and I talk about, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that profit off of addiction after creating addiction and then blame the addicts once they got rich. And then they open rehab clinics that again are shame-based, don't work, but cost enormous amounts of money. So they make money again. And um, so that's the first third. The second third is the more modern versions of shame machine, which is, as we mentioned earlier, um, the social media companies, essentially, you know, that they're designed to um, create these shaming cycles um, and keeping us on their platforms like Instagram or Facebook. Um, it's, it's new in the sense that instead of them shaming us so that we'll buy their product, they're having us shame each other so that they can profit off of our attention, right? So it's a little bit indirect. They're not directly shaming us, but they are, they are a sort of trapping us in an ecosystem of shame. And then the third section of the book is where I talk about what I think is a healthy shame. I mean, because to be clear, I, I'm not anti-shame. Shame is just a powerful, potent uh, tool, and we should be using it really, really carefully, and we're not. We're, we're just badgering ourselves over the head, each other and ourselves. And, and yet, when, when you think about it, like you'll realize that every civil rights movement ever, you shame. You know, every, every sort of progress, every sort of norm that has changed in the direction that we think of as progress is shame-based. Me too is shame-based. Some people would argue that there are moments where me too goes too far, but me too is essentially about protecting women from being sexually assaulted. And guess what? Like people said they thought that, but they didn't actually act that way. Right. So how are you going to um, enforce a norm that people only give lip service to? The answer is shame. Um, so I talk about when is shame healthy in the third. And by the way, I will tell you, spoiler alert, like punching up shame when shame is healthy is not profitable. It, in fact, it, it is usually sacrificial. It is, it's, about, it's about making, it's about sort of protesting injustice more than it is about making money. So that's, that's what I talk about in my shame book. I, I, I'm trying to address the question of like, when is shame appropriate when does shame work when is it necessary yeah um i can't wait to read that um because th there there are some interesting points there there i never really thought of every progressive movement as, as being shame-based but now that you said it certainly makes sense uh but then also there's that dark side where shame is being misused for profit and you're really good at these complex issues. 
I like the way your brain works. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thanks. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons I invited you. Um, I, I always want guests who are smarter than me, and, and you are very smart. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Um, thanks for coming on this show. I really appreciate it. Um, algorithms, even though this book is from 2016, algorithms are going to continue to be uh, something we're going to have to figure out and uh, hopefully this conversation will inspire some people to join you in this. So, Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. And that was my conversation with Kathy O'Neill. Pretty, pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? She's so smart. She's smarter than me. I wanted to read a couple excerpts from her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, before we leave, because uh, I, I think these are great extracts. Uh, all right, so the first one. WMDs tend to favor efficiency. By their very nature, they feed on data that can be measured and counted. But fairness is squishy and hard to quantify. It is a concept in computers. For all their advance, advances in language and logic, still struggle mightily with concepts. They understand beauty only as a word associated with the Grand Canyon ocean sunsets, and grooming tips in Vogue magazine. They try in vain to measure friendship by counting likes and connections on Facebook, and the concept of fairness utterly escapes them. And in this quote, uh, when she writes, they understand beauty, understand is, is in air quotes. <laughs> I love that. Uh, the second extract, in a mayor. In a mayoral race, I don't, I struggle with that word mayoral, mayoral, in a mayoral, in a mayoral race, for example, a micro-targeting campaign might tag certain voters for angry messages about unaffordable rent. But if the candidate knows these voters are angry about rent, how about using the same technology to identify the ones who will most benefit from affordable housing and help them find it? With political messaging, as with most WMDs, the heart of the problem is always, is almost always, the objective. Change that objective from leeching off people to helping them, and a WMD is disarmed and can even become a force for good. I've decided, I, I, I have three, four, I have five pages of notes and bullet points from both the reading and the TED Talk. And so I'm going to put them on my blog. A link for it will be in the description. You can just go to my website, ericnorcraft.com, go to New Media. There you'll see a drop-down list that has my podcast and my blog. I'm going to put all my bullet points in the blog because I think this, is, this subject matters, and this is one of the most important subjects of this decade that we're going to have to figure out. We're going to have to figure out this problem uh, if we want to keep using these tools. Otherwise, they're just going to keep destroying us. Thank you, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.